we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Good evening. We are awaiting the start of President Biden's news conference following his bilateral meeting today with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. When it starts, we will bring it to you live. But we begin tonight with a wild day in court in Fulton County, Georgia, as we learn the source of the leaked confidential interviews between D.A. Fonnie Willis's office and some key figures in her January 6th RICO case. Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee said he'd issue a protective order in the case, barring disclosure of certain information from the discovery process, one that would allow some evidence from the pretrial discovery process to be labeled sensitive and withheld from public scrutiny. The videos obtained by ABC News and The Washington Post showed interviews with witnesses Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Scott Hall, and with Kenneth Chesborough, whose video was not released publicly. All have taken plea deals to flip on Donald Trump, and the release prompted today's emergency hearing. At that hearing, there was a surprise confession from the source, Jonathan Miller, the attorney for one of Donald Trump's 18 other co-defendants. Former Coffee County election supervisor, Misty Hampton. In being transparent with the court and to make sure that uh, nobody else gets blamed for what happened uh, and so that I can go to sleep well tonight, uh, Judge, I, I did release those videos to one outlet. And in all candor to the court, I need the court to know that. Attorney Mitchell's explanation was that hiding the videos would, in his words, mislead the public about what went into the four guilty pleas, adding that he believed it would help his client, saying that two of the defendants were directly related to my client. Mitchell did not say who those two clients might be, but his client, Misty Hampton, is charged along with Powell and Hall in a scheme to access voting machines in Coffee County. Meanwhile, Fonnie Willis also sought to revoke the bond of another of Trump's co-defendants, Harrison Floyd, the former head of Black Voices for Trump, citing a pattern of intimidation toward co-defendants and witnesses, noting that Floyd engaged in numerous intentional and flagrant violations of his bond agreement. Those violations include recent tweets tagging individuals like Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and former Fulton County elections worker, Ruby Freeman. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and law professor at the University of Michigan, and Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, thank you, ladies. I, I, Lisa, I do want to start with you because it strikes me that um, in this last case, the case of this uh, attempt to revoke the bond of this defendant who was involved in the attempt to intimidate Ruby Freeman in the first place, Harrison Floyd, interesting that he is now looking at having his bond revoked and could wind up in jail. That is not something that Donald Trump has faced, even though he, too, has intimidated witnesses. Um, did that come up? Did his lawyers bring that up in this case? Because it's interesting that he's doing what Donald Trump is doing, but not facing the same, you know, freedom to move. 
So, Joy, this motion was filed after today's hearing. And so I'm not aware that anybody addressed what conduct Donald Trump has engaged in that might, for example, violate his own conditions of release vis-a-vis the other Fulton County defendants and witnesses. That having been said, the Fulton County DA lays out a number of acts over the last two weeks in particular, between November 1st and November 14th, where Harrison Floyd, as you noted, has gone after a number of his co-defendants or witnesses, in particular, really attacking Jenna Ellis. And I'm looking at one of the tweets right now, two days ago, saying that she was lying on Dan Scavino. And I guess they don't teach ethics at Harvard Law anymore. As an aside, Jenna Ellis did not go to Harvard Law School. Hmm. But but the larger point is that Harrison Floyd has engaged in a two-week-long campaign to intimidate and fight back against people involved in this case, ranging from Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling, as you noted, to Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell. And then finally, the motion ends with a litany of his tweets aimed squarely at Ruby Freeman, who is the person that he victimized in the first place, leading to the charges against him, and who he continues to victimize and was probably the most offensive conduct that he engaged in, according to DA Fonnie Willis's team. So I look forward to seeing how this motion is litigated, but this is just the opening salvo that we have here right now, Joy. Barb, can you comment on this? Because, I mean, the the thing is is that Donald Trump, the problem with his behavior is that it is infectious, that other people who are MAGA think that they can do what he can do, but he was the former president of the United States. He's not a black guy who was the head of Black Voices for Trump. This guy's already been jailed for his previous conduct that was violent-ish, and he was the one who was in jail the only one who was actually jailed prior to um, his plea, he's now attacking the same person he's accused of intimidating, bullying her again, continuing to victimize her. It's a wonder he hasn't already been put back in jail. However, there is a discrepancy between the kind of bullying that he can do. He probably doesn't have 25 million or however many followers that Donald Trump will used to have on Twitter or however many he has on Truth Social. Trump can actually direct a mob at people. This guy can't. But can you just address the discrepancy in the sanctions that both of them face? I mean, it's obvious he's not the former president, so he doesn't have Secret Service, but come on. (laughs) <laughs> yes. So, you know, in this case and the the Georgia Rico case, there is not currently any sort of gag order like the one that we've seen in the federal election interference case or the one in New York. So that's not what the concern is here. One of his bond conditions is that he not communicate about the case with any of his co-defendants or witnesses. And so I think this conduct directed directly toward Ruby Freeman is particularly problematic with that bond condition. As we just heard from Lisa, uh, she was the direct victim. He tried to uh, intimidate her and uh, coerce her into confessing falsely that she had uh, violated uh, and committed fraud in the election, when, of course, that wasn't true at all. And so that sort of intimidation, it goes to the very heart of this case. So I don't imagine that at the very first instance, the judge's first instinct will be to um, cancel his bond and put him in jail. But I think it's important that the judge send a message that he takes these conditions very seriously. And so I imagine we will see him in court with at least a warning uh, and a second violation may land him in jail. And of course, as you point out, Donald Trump says all kinds of things about people, um, including about people who might be witnesses or might be co-defendants. And so uh, it seems that it's Fonnie Willis who's given 
giving him a slightly longer leash. And I imagine part of that is because as a candidate for president in the future, uh, judges are likely to be inclined to give him a little more leeway so that he can respond in the public arena to these charges against him. But I think you raise a good point about treating like people alike. And I think Fannie Willis has to be careful not to be seen as holding herself to double standards. Uh, let's talk about Donald Trump, uh, his team uh, moving for a mistrial. Um, let me read some of what um, his proffer is trying to get a mistrial. Um, There's it, it, so many cases, it's hard to keep them straight at this point. Lisa, I'm going to leave it to you to explain more. This is Here's what he wrote in this case. In this case, the evidence of apparent and actual bias. I think this is in his New York case. This is his New York um, case, which he's already lost. Um, it's tangible and overwhelming. Such evidence coupled with an unprecedented departure from standard judicial procedure has tainted these proceedings and a mistrial is warranted. Um, can you, well, let me, let me add another thing. He's also gone after the law clerk saying that this is the other piece of his proffer. It's saying the law clerk has no constitutional authority to act as a co-judge and the impropriety of her participation is further magnified by the fact that she has violated a separate canon of ethics by making partisan political contributions in excess of strict limits, including to organizations actively supporting Attorney General James and opposing uh, Donald Trump. Can you talk about that just a little bit, Lisa, this attempt to try to throw out a case that is already kind of decided? Yeah, it's interesting, Joyce, because, you know, you're, to your point, when you say it's already kind of decided, this is something that I am, am trying to make clear to our viewers whenever I have an opportunity to comment on this case. The judge did decide that there has been a pervasive and years-long fraud engaged in by the Trump Organization and the five individual defendants with respect to how Donald Trump valued his assets. But there are six remaining claims here. That's why we're still having a trial that I have been attending fairly regularly. <laughs> and each of those claims require proof of intent by the defendants. And that is why they are as contested as they are, and they will take as long to try as they will. Those claims are also important to the attorney general because the magnitude of the relief that she is fighting for will largely mm. turn on how they are able to show intent by Donald Trump, his adult sons, Alan Weisselberg, the former CFO, Jeff McConney, who was the former controller, and then the organization as a whole. So the case is very much still alive. Now, to your question about the principal law clerk and the judge, the allegation that Donald Trump's lawyers are making is that this judge is functioning effectively as a co-judge and that nobody elected her, that she exchanges notes and constant whispers with Judge Arthur and Goran that lead them to believe that she is exercising a level of authority that is inappropriate. And on top of that, because of her partisan political contributions and activities, that she is already a person who's demonstrated a partisan prejudgment of Donald Trump before she ever walked in the room. I think that to the extent that they are able to show that her campaign contributions are problematic and are a violation of judicial ethics here in New York, that will not be a basis for a mistrial or overturning any later decision by Judge Gorn. It will likely be, if proven, a basis for discipline. And as you know, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik has a pending complaint with the New York Commission on Judicial Ethics. But wow. there isn't a lot of proof that the conversations between the judge and his law clerk are, in fact, emblematic of bias. As Barb knows well, just because you lose repeatedly in front of a judge doesn't mean that judge is biased. It right. might mean that you actually committed the yeah. conduct of which you've been accused and might be held liable in the future.
Yeah. Okay. And let's let's zigzag back. Absolutely. First of all, let me just read what uh, Attorney General James, her response was once again, Donald Trump is trying to dismiss the truth and the facts, but the numbers and evidence don't lie. Donald Trump is now being held accountable for the years of fraud he committed and the incredible ways he lied to enrich himself and his family. He can keep trying to distract from his fraud, but the truth always comes out. That's uh, Attorney General uh, uh, James's response. Let me zigzag right back to Georgia just for a second, Barb. Um, the, the Georgia election workers who have been victimized in this case are now seeking Ruby Freeman, who uh, the aforementioned Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, her daughter, are seeking $15.5 million and $43 million from Rudy Giuliani in a defamation suit that's slated to begin next month in Washington, D.C. Um, the fact that he's already been found liable for defamatory comments, for defamatory comments, it's similar to the New York case in which the finding of fact is done and now it's a question of liability. Uh, what do you make of that? That just, that starts in December and it's, this is about just the damages. Can you explain how it can be that there's still a trial when all they're trying to figure out is damages? Yes. So, you know, liability is one question. And then what what's it worth is a separate question. And so the damages will go you know, to their reputations. What kind of harm did they receive as a result of this? We heard their testimony before the House Select Committee on this about how their lives had been changed as a result of it. But that's what the, will be before a court in this case. And so they'll have to put a dollar value on that. You know, lost wages if they stopped working because of this. Pain and suffering, emotional damage, the inability to leave their homes. I expect this number to be well into the millions, but uh, a judge will actually uh, assess the, the, the value and uh, provide an award to them. And both sides will certainly argue about what they think this case is worth. And then they'll have to see if they can try to collect from Rudy Giuliani, see how much money he's got left. Uh, Barbara McQuaid and Lisa Rubin. That's always the rub, isn't it? Uh, thank you, ladies, very much. And coming up next, uh, well, we're waiting uh, the start for, of President Biden's news conference following his bilateral meeting in California today with Chinese President Xi Jinping. I have an amazing panel standing by to talk about that. And the readout continues. got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. In this hour, President Biden will do something he doesn't do too often, hold a news conference. It will be his first solo news conference since May, and it couldn't come at a more critical time because a lot is going on right now, both here at home and around the world. Earlier today, Biden met face to face with Chinese President Xi Jinping, the first conversation between the two in a year. The two discussed a range of issues, including the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East. 
where Israeli forces raided the Al-Shifa hospital, trapping hundreds, including medical staff, patients, displaced families, and premature babies. It was a significant escalation in what has already been a devastating assault. And it comes as President Biden is facing criticism, including from members of his own administration, for his handling of the conflict. Then you have Biden's likely 2024 opponent, who seems to be getting more authoritarian by the day, threatening political opponents, judges, prosecutors, even describing his rivals as vermin. Something President Biden said yesterday echoes language used in Nazi Germany. On top of that, the Republican-led House of Representatives is in complete dysfunction, with just days until the government runs out of money. The newest House Speaker yesterday passed a funding bill that would keep the government open and running for at least a couple more months, but with support from Democrats rather than members of his own party. While the Republicans have been busy getting into near fistfights, screaming matches, and today yelling at the FBI director and Homeland Security secretary about, well, everything. Were you aware of this? Uh, Congresswoman, as I said, I haven't seen the photos that you're holding up uh, before. Maybe, well, I posted them on my Twitter account. It's, it's public. You know, maybe I don't you guys spend are, a lot of time on Twitter. Well, you know, you, you sh- oh, I'm sure you do. Because the Department of Homeland Security, organized with other offices, has censored many Americans, including myself. I'm not part of the Department of Homeland Security. Can you confirm that the FBI had that sort of engagement with your own agents embedded within the crowd on January 6th? If you are asking whether the violence at the Capitol on January 6th was part of some operation orchestrated by FBI sources and or agents, the answer is emphatically You're saying not. no? No. You're saying no? Not okay. violence orchestrated Let's by FBI on. sources or agents. Are you familiar with, with, you know what a ghost vehicle is? Uh-huh. A reminder that your tax dollars pay their salaries. You're welcome. Let's bring in my panel, Helene Cooper, correspondent for The New York Times and MSNBC political contributor, Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor and MSNBC political contributor, Charles Blow, columnist for The New York Times and MSNBC political analyst, and Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian. Thank you all for being here. I I just want to go in reverse order and start with... um, Clay Higgins and Marjorie Green, uh, Marjorie Green, who somehow thinks that uh, the FBI director actually also runs the Homeland Security Department and has been messing with her Twitter account. And Clay Higgins, uh, Ben Rhodes, who seems to believe that it is wisdom to, as a United States congressperson, congressman, float the idea to the FBI director's face that the FBI orchestrated January 6th by trucking over FBI operatives to cause the violence that we saw. That, to me, is absolute madness. But I just want to just get you to comment on the fact that that happened today in a in a, uh, a, a congressional hearing. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a uh, signal of the absolute absence of any bottom for these people. Uh, I think you saw in the reaction from Director Ray that he took it personally, not just uh, himself, but frankly, his entire agency, which has been consistently this target of conspiracy theory and all manner of bizarre accusations from members of Congress. Uh, I think what's really telling about it, Joy, though, is that these people, you know, there used to be a situation where people were elected to Congress and they went and they represented their constituents and they worked on certain issues. These are people that are like living in a far right wing fever dream media ecosystem where they assume 
that normal human beings, including people that run very important large government agencies, are somehow aware of their bizarre conspiracy theories. Because that, they spend all their time uh, either in a media ecosystem or talking to other people who are, are familiar with the intricacies of the conspiracy theories about you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter account or what some FBI source might have been doing on January 6th. And, and the you know, normal people uh, have no idea what they're talking about. You know? and, and so the fact that this is what they're doing, representing their constituents, this is what they're doing when they, they should be funding the government and keeping it open rather than, you know, hanging their newly elected speaker out to dry uh, to have to turn to Democratic votes. There are multiple wars happening around the world that could use congressional attention. Instead, they've turned Congress into just a forum for like an extension of some far right wing media podcast or something where they're going to talk about conspiracy theories and insult people that work every day to keep us safe. I think it just shows you how fundamentally unserious the Republican Party is about governing or, or really about anything. And it's not at a time that is not momentous. I want to play what Christopher Ray, the testimony that he actually gave. Uh, and I watched a good bit of this hearing and it was bizarre to watch because you had on one side, Democrats are asking questions about things like, you know, the rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic violence and uh, Islamophobic violence and, and other threats to our national security and Republicans who were doing that who were doing that performance. And it was it was wild to just sort of watch it happen um, in this committee. Uh, let me listen. Let me let you listen to Christopher Ray. And he was talking about the actual real threats we face. They're not to Marjorie Greene's Twitter uh, account. Here we go. The greatest threat to the homeland is lone actors or small groups uh, typically radicalized online using easily accessible weapons to attack soft targets. And that group of lone actors includes both, as you rightly say, domestic violent extremists, as well as, though, that's the clarification, homegrown violent extremists who are individuals here who are inspired by foreign terrorists. And Charles Blow, you know, this is one of the many things on the plate of the federal government and on the plate of the Biden administration um, at a time when the polarization in the country doesn't allow Americans to focus on that because so many actually believe conspiracy theories or focused on conspiracy theories and really only see January 6th through that lens. Talk about the challenge of that uh, and attempting to not just run for re-election, but actually govern in that environment. Right. Well, the Republicans are not, like you said, are not interested in governing whatsoever. Uh, and they're in particular not interested in focusing on the homegrown threat, because very often the people who are radicalized are coming from the white, from the right. And many of them are uh, young white men. And those are not the people who play well into their narrative about who the threats should be. They want to focus on a threat of crime that they uh, position as be coming from uh, black and brown people in the inner cities. They want to focus on the threat coming across the border, which they position as mostly brown people. Uh, they don't want to focus on this particular kind of threat. And so they do this thing that you just saw, which is performance in front of cameras. And this is part of it is, you know, this idea that they uh, are lost and they don't understand things. I actually think that they are, it's more sophisticated than that. It's just a, a, an exploitation of, of media that exists today. It, it began as an exploitation of cameras in these hearings, but then, even then it was up to news uh, papers and news channels, uh, television news channels to put things on. Now in an age uh, where social media can grab clips of everything, all of this works for Marjorie. None of this hurts Marjorie. You, all she has to do is to never apologize, always be aggressive, 
And that plays to her base that helps her to raise money and raising money and raising your profile in the Republican Party is the only thing that matters now in this kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, world that Donald Trump has created that he brought into politics, which is much more of a TV centric world. So I think that it, it maybe it's kind of naive and crazy on some level, but also just savvy and, and exploitation of media on another yeah. And, and it's and the thing about it is it, it and I'm going to expend all the unserious people first. Clay Higgins, Marjorie Green. I'm going to get one more in. Uh, and this, unfortunately, is going to fall in your lap, Michael Beschloss, because this is somebody who's <laughs> both you. unserious and attempting to call upon a really dark period in our history in order to make a really stupid point, which is that he actually wants to physically fight the head of the Teamsters. And that is the only thing that Mark Wayne Mullen, who is a United States senator from the state of Oklahoma, the place where the Tulsa massacre happened, something that is, that is a history he probably doesn't even know. And this is somebody sure. who says, right, who he, he claims Native American heritage. And yet this is the way um, that he went on and expounded upon his desire to physically fight uh, the head of the Teamsters Union. Here is Mark Wayne Mullen talking about Andrew Jackson. Could you guys go bare knuckle if you wanted to? Just a well, we looked into the rules and, you know, you used to build a cane. You got to remember President Andrew Jackson uh, challenged nine guys to a duel and won nine times. And a White House <laughs> dinner one time, a guy was mouthing him at the end of the table. Jackson jumped up, literally ran across the table and knocked the guy out. Um, and so at the end of the day, there is presence for it. Michael Beschloss, I, I don't even know what to say. So your thoughts. Yeah, th thanks a lot for giving me this duty, Joy. Uh, yes, absolutely <laughs> true. You know, here we are. You know, what is different about tonight? Our country is in real danger. You heard what Chris Ray said today. Domestic terrorism, foreign terrorism. Right now, our president has been meeting today with the leader of China, with whom we are on the razor edge of a new Cold War, with, you know, the two leaders not having been able to speak, mainly from their side, during the last year. And so a big part of our government is the Congress of the United States. Are they rising to the occasion? No. We've got a Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, and this is unlike any time in all of American history, who is the willing and eager and maybe the frightened operative of an ex-president, Donald Trump, who's running for president of the United States. If Donald Trump wants Mike Johnson to initiate or resume an impeachment investigation against Donald Trump's presumed opponent next year, Joe Biden, Mike Johnson is going to do it. But this is not an independent branch. This is a subservient branch to an ex-president and perhaps even a future president. So all I'm saying is, you know, let, let's look for two moments in American history that give us some rough precedent for this. One is the 1850s. We were careening towards civil war. We saw the kind of violence or near violence on the floor of the House and Senate that we almost saw yesterday between Sean O'Brien and Senator Mullen from Oklahoma. Uh, and that is probably going to increase. And at the same time, you know, let's take a look at 1940, a time when Americans were divided right down the middle. They were about to vote for president. Should we gather together to stand up to Adolf Hitler in the imperial Japanese? Or should we just say, you know, we'll retire behind our ocean moats and see what happens? Just the same kind of question that we are asking tonight around the world. So all I'm saying is if you compare the urgency and danger of the moment, which is huge 
in a historical context, plus the seriousness of Congress, which is low, this would be a laughing stock if it were not so dangerous. It is a very scary time. Uh, indeed. Uh, and I gave you that assignment, my friend, because uh, when they go low, I know you go high and you have set us up Thank perfectly I, I for try. where I want to start. Thank you very Thank you, much. Mike. And uh, I, well, I definitely appreciate you. My distinguished panel is going to stay right with me because uh, Michael Beschloss has set us up perfectly for where I want to start with Helene Cooper right on the other side of the break. We are still awaiting the start of President Biden's news conference. So stay right there. Got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Back with me are Helene Cooper, Ben Rhodes, Charles Blow, and Michael Beschloss. And Helene, let me start with you. Uh, the meeting that President Biden had today with uh, Xi Jinping focused on generally four areas, Taiwan, Israel, and Hamas, um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and North Korea and human rights. Kind of give us sort of a, a picture of kind of where China fits into those issues, noting that there was a Russian missile attack on Kiev uh, literally today. Well, hi, Joy. Oh, Thanks. This week. For Sorry, this week, me. this week, not today. Go ahead. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, it's such a big deal, this meeting between uh, Xi and, and Biden, because, um, as Michael mentioned earlier, they have not met in a, a solid year and things have deteriorated. If you look at just what has happened in the past year since they last uh, talked to each other, uh, you've got the the, the Russia's continued um, um, uh, invasion and occupation war in Ukraine. You have the Chinese spy balloon crisis that we all had in, in back in, I think it was February or, or March. You have the Israel Gaza Hamas war. You have, there's, there's been so much and things have been going steadily uh, downhill in the relationship between China and the United States. And these are, let's face it, Russia considers itself to be a superpower, but the United States and China, these are the world's two big superpowers, and they have been on a collision course for, for several years now. Uh, the, the two men were, uh, scheduled. We heard from Biden, uh, administration's officials, uh, planning to talk about all of the issues I, I mentioned early, there was earlier, there was going to be what China wants from the U.S. is for the United States to let up a little bit on some of the restrictions and the pressure that the Biden administration in the United States has put on China on a number of things, including 
technology transfers. Uh, the United States, for its part, would like China to ease uh, uh, to put more restrictions in place of uh, stuff that uh, funds fentanyl. They want them to. They want Beijing to crack down on that. The United States would love for uh, China and the United States to resume military to military dialogue, which China cut off uh, last year, right after in, in uh, opposition to Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. This is a big deal. I just got back uh, yesterday from a trip to Japan and Korea with uh, General Charles Q. Brown, the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he told us that the U.S. is so eager to resume these military talks because he's worried that when these two big militaries don't have any kind of dialogue, it's so easy for misconceptions to to turn into war. And that's the last thing you want. Beijing has been doing what the Pentagon describes as a lot of dangerous uh, maneuvers in the Pacific uh, with their fighter jets, with their ships coming very dangerously close to American uh, to American ships and to American planes in the region. So there's a lot of conflict over that. that. And the two what the Biden administration wants to be able to pick up the phone and say, look, before, you know, before something gets too too out of control. And that's you, that's the last thing right. you want with these two superpowers. When you look at the Russia war with Ukraine, China has been, the U.S. is worried about China siding uh, more with Russia. There's worry about where China's going to end up on the Hamas thing. So there's just so much going on and there's so much room for misunderstanding that it has to be a good thing that President Biden and President Xi are finally sitting down to talk, though whether or not when you hear how administration officials have described their expectations from the for the meeting, you know, nobody mm-hmm. expects that it's going to be a great, huge announcements of, of big progress. But I think just the fact that the two men are talking is what's going to be uh, put forth as 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 sort of the, the encouraging sign. Yeah. Let me um, bring you in here, Ben, on this, because this is a lot of complicated stuff that President Biden is trying to sort of manage in terms of America's place in the world and this sort of position of the West. Uh, President Biden, I think one could argue, really brought the West together when it came to Ukraine, um, but in some ways is isolated a bit more when it comes to Israel uh, with what's happening in Gaza um, because of the international outrage, even President Macron coming out and saying, yeah, too much death, too many babies dying. And the, the, the pictures out of Gaza are horrific. It's causing him domestic uh, political issues as well. Uh, talk a little bit about that balancing act, because President Biden has is, is sort of, you know, the West is the good guy on in one instance. Uh, and in the other instance, a lot of the world is doing massive protests, not just against what Israel is doing, but against us. I think the United States is incredibly isolated uh, from most of the rest of the world uh, when it comes to Israel's military operation in Gaza right now. The problem that the U.S. was already having with the Ukraine war is that the Biden team had done a good job of holding together the NATO alliance and the U.S. and Europe and then some Asian allies like Japan and South Korea and Australia. But really, the rest of the world, uh, particularly the, the global south, countries in Latin America, Asia and Africa, we're not coming on board to put sanctions on Russia or to enforce those sanctions or to provide diplomatic or military support to Ukraine. That was already the case before uh, the the uh, October 7th attack from Hamas and the Israeli response. Uh, and China, 
was taking advantage of that and was trying to say, look, the U.S. is focused on this war in Ukraine. They're not focused on the things you care about, which is economic development, which is infrastructure, which is uh, the clean energy transition that you need to make. We'll be your supplier on that. Um, and I think that opening for China has gotten a lot bigger in the last few weeks. We should just be honest about that. That is what is happening in the world right now. Um, and I think for the Biden team, it's a precarious moment because the war in Ukraine has reached something of a stalemate in the assessment of Ukraine's own military leadership um, after a counteroffensive that yielded fairly minimal gains. And it's going to be hard for the U.S. to sustain support, including from the U.S. Congress, which has to approve the next round of assistance package for Ukraine. The U.S. is somewhat, I think, particularly isolated on uh, its uh, kind of unwavering support for Israel. There's some countries, the United Kingdom, Germany, some other European countries are very much where the U.S. is. But as you said, global public opinion, as well as opinion and and much of the rest of the world, uh, I think, is very much against the position the U.S. has taken. Uh, And so this is an opportunity to say we're resetting this one relationship. We're putting a floor underneath the dissent in the relationship between the U.S. and China. We're showing the rest of the world we can solve some problems through dialogue. We don't want another conflict in the Taiwan Strait, which is why we need a military-to-military exchange to prevent escalation. We want to at least kind of put this on a back burner now because we've got two big wars on the front burner in the Middle East uh, and, and, and Ukraine, and those wars are, are quite complicated for the U.S. to manage right now. Yeah. And, and, and then then on top of that, there is the domestic political situation and the fallout that's happening here as a result of those policies as well. I want to talk about that on the other side of the break. My panel is sticking with us. We are awaiting the start of President Biden's news conference. But I want to talk about the domestic political situation uh, President Biden is facing as he goes toward a reelection campaign. We're going to do that right after a quick break. We are still awaiting President Biden's press conference at any moment Waiting. And back with me are Helene Cooper, Ben Rhodes, Charles Blow, and Michael Beschloss. I, I want to quickly play for you all um, a, 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 a piece of sound from a gentleman named Dr. Ahmed El Mokaladi. He's a plastic surgeon at Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza, and he is describing um, what's happening at the hospital to our uh, reporters at NBC. Taylor. It's more of a war zone where it's continuous bombing, shooting, drones are within the hospital area. Uh, targeting and shooting anyone moving between the buildings. Uh, the the ambulances are not allowed to move in or out of the hospital. Whoever tries to move will be killed. Charles Blow, this situation um, in Gaza has become a liability for President Biden at home. Um, Arab American voters expressing a desire to not vote for him again. Um, African Americans, young black voters um, who are, are aligned with the Palestinian cause turning against him. It's, it's, it's a real problem, even in his own administration, letters being sent around from people in the administration objecting to the policy, including members of Congress getting similar uh, missives from their own staffs. Here's a poll I want to show you. This is President Biden. If, in fact, there was a five-way race for president uh, right now, he would get 35 percent. There's just one poll, just a Quinnipiac poll, and it is a year out. 38 percent for Donald Trump. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. polling at 17 percent. Cornell West at three. Jill Stein at three. This doesn't even include Joe Manchin, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Talk a little bit about the ways in which this conflict has impacted President Biden uh, and changed in some ways the way people look at how his reelect might look. Right. So I always have to say this when starting out this conversation that, you know, there is no real comparison between what Joe Biden is doing and what Trump has basically signaled that he wants to do to the country, which is basically to destroy it. So I think we always have to just start there, even when discussing whatever the weaknesses Biden might have. I do think that the Gaza situation has opened up a real chasm between uh, uh, 
the democratic coalition that existed and the younger parts of that coalition, they, they're just really upset. Um, you, and it is hard to look at this and not be upset on some level, even when you accept that uh, Hamas committed a terrorist attack, killed 1,200 people. That's horrific. Even if you accept that it is horrific that they took hostages and that is a horrible thing to do in any regard. You don't know where your loved ones are. That's horrific. Still, when you have over 10,000 people killed in one month of war, it is un. Conscionable. There's no other way to think about that. Uh, I've heard people say, "Well, when you're attacked in a, in a you know in a terrorist attack, you can't tell that country what to do. You couldn't tell the U.S. not to go in, into Afghanistan." Even there, the the, the 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 comparison doesn't hold. We the the Afghan war. I think there were almost fifty thousand civilians killed in that war over twenty years. If you average that out, that's two. That's twenty. I'm sorry, two hundred people. A month. That's still horrible, but it doesn't stack up to 10,000. You know, and maybe you can say that in the beginning of a war, there were more civilians killed than at the end. Whatever you want to say, you can say that Hamas may be inflating the numbers a little bit. I, I take that your point. Still, the numbers are incredible. And when you understand that more than half of those, at least by the reports, are women and children, how do you how do you how do you deal with that? And I think a lot of people particularly young people are looking at that and saying, this is not a moral thing. This is immoral and I have to take a stand. And that is a problem for Joe Biden because those would be his voters. You know, what, what, what's um, kind of sort of jarring Michael Beschloss is that Joe Biden's brand has been built on empathy. Um, and this is one of those places where his empathy has not has seemed to fail him the way he's communicated about this, particularly since there are, you know, the, the, the images that we're seeing are so horrific and so many of them involve children. I mean, the, the images of those infants in that incubator where they're all just trying to warm each other because the incubators don't work anymore. It's it's hard to watch. Um, and it has broken uh, Joe Biden from a part of his base that had kind of forgiven him for some other things that they wanted him to do that he didn't do. Uh, historically, um, it does. I don't know. Where do you think that this places him? Because where he stood vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and where he stands vis-a-vis um, Israel and Hamas feels so completely different. It's like two different presidents are running for re-election. Well, the numbers would suggest that this is a division among Biden voters and Democrats that, uh, from his point of view, he's going to have to resolve between now and less than a year from this month. Uh, so that is absolutely true. I would uh, totally underline what Charles said, and that is that is as much as people may be rightfully disturbed by a lot of the things that they are seeing, the overwhelming question is probably going to be, you know, are, you, are, are Americans going to vote for Joe Biden, who, with all of his flaws, loves democracy, wants to preserve our system, or for Donald Trump, who'd like to bring, it, uh, bring all of this down, end the rule of law, as he said, stop the Constitution, uh, usher in what amounts to a military dictatorship. And if I could uh, bring in another thing, you know, beyond what we've been talking about tonight, you were talking, Joy, about, you know, what is the effect of what we're seeing today on domestic politics? Other leaders in other countries, especially those who hate us, know that they can do a lot to elect the president they want by initiating or exacerbating international events. Take 1980. 
Jimmy Carter was president. He was dealing with double-digit inflation. But more than that, he was dealing with a superpower confrontation in Afghanistan and an Iran hostage crisis. Without those two and maybe those three things, Carter would have won. Ever since then, a country that wishes us ill can say, you know, let's resolve the American election. And I'm not talking about the Middle East here. I'm talking about the possibility of an invasion of Taiwan or something that we are not expecting. You know, let's have an international event that reshuffles the cards. So all I'm saying is that for us to predict the world we're going to be dealing with a year from now is probably, for at least me, a fool's errand. It, it is difficult, Helene. I mean, the, the, it seems that there are, it's sort of everything everywhere all at once, like the title of that film. Um, and the Middle East crisis has bedeviled every single president since the 1960s. Um, and so Biden is in a particularly difficult place. But it, how unprecedented is it for, for you as a journalist who's covered this sort of international community for there to be this much open dissent and public dissent for an American president um, during a crisis like this? Because on this Israel issue, I, I don't know that I've ever seen this much internal dissent that's made public. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And I think one of the issues that makes this so extraordinary is uh, you mentioned earlier that Arab Americans and a lot of young African Americans were very angry at President Biden over this. It's not just them. I have so many Jewish friends who are talking about how their kids are out protesting uh, on behalf yeah. of Palestinians. I think it's it's it's, it's a very young. It's a it, uh, so many young college. You see the kind of the crises we're having at these college uh, campuses, and uh, you see so many of these kids who are just starting out, starting to vote, uh, who are going to be, who are pissed off about this. And he's also getting, but President Biden is in, in, in quite a fix because he's also going to, he's also getting stuff from the, the pro Israel crowd. And he's afraid of alienating the people at APAC. Uh, and I, it, we were talking about this in the New York Times, uh, newsroom just the other day about it almost feels as if for Biden to save his presidency, he's going to have to figure out a way to bring Bring peace to the Israeli is he's going to have to actually like solve the whole problem and come up with peace right. for the Israeli Israelis and Palestinians. He's in such a, a hole with this, and it's a very hard thing. And I think the administration bet. Ben kind of alluded to this, but the administration sort of uh, had not realized how much the world had passed by their standard response to this mm. issue, which is first and foremost, just show how much you support support Israel. And I think they were a little bit taken by surprise at how much the world has started to move beyond and starting to 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 promote the not promote, but 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 to consider the 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 plight of the Palestinians on equal terms yeah. as the plight of the Israelis who also want peace in their land. You know, and it's a very good point, Ben. I'll let you close on that because you talked about the global south. This issue is seen one way by the vast majority of uh, the world and one way by uh, Joe Biden, who uh, a, a person I spoke with in the administration, uh, you know, said he's just old school and he was taken aback by it. Yeah, I mean, you know, he made this kind of full embrace, not just of Israel, let's be clear, uh, full embrace of Prime Minister Netanyahu um, in mm. the days after its attacks. Um and, and in some ways, that made the U.S. kind of a co-author, uh, gave the U.S. a degree of ownership over what Netanyahu and his government, which is the most far-right government in Israel's history, even with this uh, unity government, was going to do. Um, and what we've learned of, in repeated presidents, including the one I worked for, is that Prime Minister Netanyahu is more than willing to ignore 
uh, the advice of the U.S. Mm. government. So you've seen this recalibration where they start to talk about humanitarian pauses, uh, where they start to talk about getting aid in, but that's not happening. What's happening is what we see the images from that hospital. What's happening is there's thousands of children that have been killed. What's happening is the Israeli government under Netanyahu is saying, we're going to permanently uh, or open-ended be responsible for security in Gaza. And I think that's a really big problem. And they have to decide, you know, it's you, you can't hug Netanyahu in public and, and, and deliver these messages kind of quietly. At some point, mm-hmm. they're going to have to meet people yeah. where they are. And people are concerned yeah. about this. Indeed. Uh, Ben Rhodes, Helene Cooper, Charles Blow, Michael Beschloss. I could not have imagined a better panel and a more brilliant panel to talk with tonight. Thank you all very much. Uh, That is tonight's readout. We got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.